Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Texas State Choirs Today. I am your host, Jonathan Babcock. For our first guest, we could not think of anyone more appropriate than Director of Choral Activities and Associate Dean of the College of Fine Arts and Communications at Texas State University, Dr. Joey Martin. Dr. Martin, welcome to our show, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Good morning. It's great to be with you. One reason we started this podcast was to take advantage of all the extraordinary guest artists we have coming to Texas State every year. We have a unique opportunity to explore their experience and unveil insights into their craft. Who can you tell us we are expecting on campus this year? Every year we try to focus on two areas. One, an outstanding international presence in choral conducting. And we also look toward a composer that specializes in choral music. And this year we have Ralph Allwood from Eton College as our conducting professor. We're excited to have him at the end of March. And then we have Gwyneth Walker with us in the beginning of March for a week where she shares with our choirs about her music. And on the Friday, at the end of the week, we all of our choirs come together to perform some of her works with her in attendance. At the end of April, we're also fortunate to be having a Texas premiere of a work by Jocelyn Hagen based on the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, and university singers and Texas State Chorale will be joining together to do two of her works that are very special in that they include multimedia that is interactive throughout the concert. So in addition to beautiful singing and with a beautiful chamber ensemble, we'll also have a video representation prepared by Musica, which is a specific company that has a software that will be interactive throughout the concert and requires timing. So they're going to be on campus with us as well. Jocelyn can't be with us that week, but she is going to be with us in March because she'll already be in Austin doing a premiere of one of her works with Consperare with one of our faculty members, Craig Hella Johnson. While she's in uh, Austin, she's going to travel down the 30 miles to be with us and inspire us about the two works we'll be performing with her. That's so exciting. And we'll be talking to all of them here on Texas State Choirs today when they arrive on campus. A large part of our audience is undergraduate students just starting their careers as musicians and their life as adults. So I'd like to start our interview hearing about your undergraduate experience. Where did you do your undergraduate degree? I did my undergraduate at Southwest Oklahoma State University in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Uh, I actually started my study uh, at Oklahoma State University as an agriculture economics major, uh, but that didn't go so well. I mean, I, I did fine academically, but very quickly it appeared to me that that wasn't my true calling. I transferred to Southwestern Oklahoma State University to pursue my pre-meds, and uh, I happened to have an advisor. Back then, the faculty were the advisors for the students, and he was in the School of Music. He had been one of my conductors during an honor choir that I was both a pianist and I sang in the choir and was a soloist for. He remembered me. As he was helping me to outline my program of study, he said, you know, pre-med is not a degree program. You'll need to have a major. Why don't you do music? It'll increase your chances of getting into med school. And I thought, well, why not? So I took music courses, fell in love with it, and fell in love especially with being in choirs. At that point, I sang 
in three of the choirs, was also the pianist for three of them, and then I sang and danced in the show choir as well. So I was in four choral ensembles while I was an undergrad every year. Are there any videos of the show choir that that we could see? Or... I hope not. But there are <laughs> there are pictures. Uh, every once in a while, I place them up on on Facebook, and it was the '80s, so it was the time of big hair. And all of that certainly shows us the diversity of the music that you're exposed to. You, you are never afraid to go to a big swath of music and choose from all different genres. What what draws you to, to such a large genre? I think a large part of it was being formed at an early age with a lot of music around me. Certainly the Southern Baptist Church, where I attended every week and my mother played the piano, had a strong effect, especially on hymnody and the power of music to reach people. But at the same time, I had a father who was listening to country and Western music. I was sitting on a tractor that only had AM radio stations, so you would only hear uh, Western country and Western music. Uh, then I had a sister, six years older, who was listening constantly to the rock music of the period. And I started piano lessons and was influenced by a piano teacher who had a very strong affiliation with classical music and was giving me recordings to listen to and shaping style. So early in life, I was hearing a lot. And I also did some square dancing as a young, uh, young man and enjoyed uh, movement with music. And uh, we had a local dance club for teenagers on Sunday nights that went until about 10 o'clock. So dancing was always a part of my life and being around it. So I've had a lot of music in my life and I've always enjoyed it. As a matter of fact, my first job was at a university directing a jazz choir and a show choir and teaching voice. So that pulled from a lot of my interests. And how wonderful to have so many uh, points to draw on from your youth Pulling on your undergraduate experience, I would love it if you would share with us one very favorite story from your college days. The very first semester that I had transferred, I transferred in at the spring uh, to Southwestern Global State University. They were preparing Elijah. And I love that our director of the choir, of the large choir, was exposing us to masterworks. Even though we couldn't have an orchestra with us, we still did it with piano. And at that time, I got to be both the pianist, and I was singing along with the choir, but uh, eventually I was just the pianist for it. Uh, and I shared half the pieces with a very good friend of mine. She played half of it, and I played the other half. An odd moment happened, though. Uh, the dress rehearsal, we're on stage, and we're getting ready for that very first opening where Elijah's about to make his statement. And the director looks at me, and I put my hands on the piano, and I could not remember where to put my hands. It was like the piano was a foreign instrument to me and the, the notes didn't mean anything. And I looked to my friend and went, where do I put my hands? She got big eyed and she placed them on the keyboard. As soon as I put them in the right spot, everything flooded back. But that was a little crazy making. The better part of that though was getting to sing masterworks. We sang Elijah, we sang Judas Maccabeus, we sang the Queen of Barana. Even though it was a small school, we were still being exposed to these major works. And it gave me an appreciation for it and also a, a broad sense of you don't always have to have the orchestra to engage in a work. And I, you go with what you have. 
and we did. And then we'd turn right around and in the chamber choir do lots of Anglican and uh, music from England, which was very different, both unaccompanied and accompanied. Then, of course, we'd be in the show choir. And then I was in the men's chorus and played for the women's chorus. So I, I was exposed constantly to a lot of music. Uh, our, our undergraduate years are always so formative and, and just such a special time in our life. You and I have had the incredible luck to work together now for 10 years. Can you believe it? It's been 10 time years. Time flies, doesn't it? <laughs> One aspect of your artistry that I have such an admiration for is your thoughtful an effective approach to treating text in music. Would you tell us about your process when you're preparing your score? I know you often start your score study with the poetry rather than the musical elements. How does that inform your decision-making? It comes from a fundamental, two very fundamental philosophies. First of all, the purpose of of singing in a choir and the grail that I feel as the director, that I feel like it's an opportunity for diverse voices to come together, to share in a corporate way, and to, in a chamber music way, know when to lead, when to follow, and when to work in perfect unison. So gaining understanding and also learning to work together. So it it comes primarily from that. And from that philosophy, then, there's a secondary idea as to what is the primary purpose for us as a conductor and our role. And, and for me, the first thing, and I received this from a teacher once, and I don't remember who, so if I ever find that out, I'll give tribute, but the, the, that person shared that the primary purpose of the conductor is to reveal the score to themselves. And then their second action that they must take is to take that knowledge and develop the rehearsals in a meaningful way that reveals the music to the performers. So that finally, in this third step, when we get to performance, if I've done my job as a conductor and I've, I've worked to reveal the score to myself and I've, in rehearsal, shared it and revealed the score to our performers, at the final performance, then the score is revealed to the audience. Even if it's in a foreign language, partially through the use of program notes and through translations, but primarily for us having an authentic performance, the audience gets it. So in the studying process, text, of course, is incredibly important. And the text serves the function of several individuals to be able to come together to share an idea. And it may have a slightly different meaning or even a largely different meaning at the end of it or have a different effect on each individual. But as a group, we come together to share whatever it is that the text is revealing, some greater truth or greater awareness. So that is why uh, I start with text, because in a choral organization, 90% of the time, text is with us. Sometimes there is no text, as we sing, like in host planets, the ladies won't be singing any text, but there's still meaning there, and we have to find that meaning. What is Holst trying to represent? So I, I can give you an example of, right. if I were looking at it. In our choral family, we share a composition that every one of our members receive, that we give them the music to it, and we perform it at the end of every concert. And... Um, it's a setting of a Shaker hymn. We, I took this uh, initially 
because it spoke to me. And although it does belong to a Christian denomination, to a Christian church, the message is not specifically or even intentionally Christian. It reaches more broadly to anyone that's open. And uh, if we look at, as with most hymns, you could just sing it and not give much thought to it and think, it was a pretty tune, great harmonization, glad we did it, it was nice. But if we seek to find a deeper understanding and how this could mean something to me, uh, whether I'm a Christian or I have any religion in my life or I have none, there still is a great truth that could reach to us. So I think often about the first line when it says, not one sparrow is forgotten. We have to ask ourselves, why would the poets use a sparrow? Why that bird? Well, a sparrow is one of the most abundant birds. You usually see that they're small, there are tons of them flocking together, and you see them in much of the world. But it's saying that even with multitudes of things that look the same or to an outside observer may seem the same, not one of them is forgotten. Each is important. Mm. And then the second line is, even the raven, God will feed. Well, why the raven? Often the raven is a bird that we think of with darker ideas or we associate to death or uh, there's a lot of folklore about it. Even uh, Poe had a lot to say about it. We're not really fond of the ravens <laughs> traditionally. <laughs> Most people aren't. And uh, maybe for the right reason, but it's saying that even if you're a rascal or the least heralded of anything, you're not forgotten. So I think it's important to know that if you're a part of multitude and easy to be lost in the crowd, you're not forgotten. Neither are the naughty ones. And then the next line shifts from birds to a plant and says, and, and the lily of the valley from his bounty hath its need. You know, the lily, something that is part of the earth, quite different from these air spirits, something that's earthbound and is very beautiful. It gains its beauty from something else. Then the poet shifts and uses a very important word. The poet says, then shall I not trust thee, Father. I love that shift, then. We had a list before, and now we're having a shift of idea. If we know all these things, if we know that people that are part of many are not forgotten, if we know the naughty are not forgotten, if we know that the beautiful still receive what they need, then shall I not trust thee, Father? If this is a truth, can we not place our, our, our trust in something? And then it goes on to say, in thy mercy have a share. It, we're asking, shouldn't we do this? And the final phrase, and through faith and prayer, my mother, merit thy protecting care. And in the hymn, mother is capitalized. We often think of the capital in the English language uh, to be for God. It shifts the, the thought of the reader to the mothering side of God. There's the protection 
that is offered to us, not just the judgment. So if we take this away from any religious thought, if we are open to knowing that in the world, it could be the force from Star Wars, or it could just be the inner calm that we find through meditation and peace as we look inward. If we're open to that, each of us have a place and there's something greater. It could be this choir you're in and the corporate good that's in there. That will lift you up and sustain you. And we use this with our kids. Uh, Mm -hmm. You uh, I, at first, I'd started with Crowell, and you said, hey, this is a great message. We should open it up to all of our choirs, and absolutely true. This is a message we'd like for all of the members of our choral family to know that in this room, in this group, you are not forgotten, and you are protected, and you are held up, and you're given what you need um, in this hour and a half or hour that you're in rehearsal, in this performance and in this music. So the larger message can be lost if we just skim across the words and we don't seek to find the deeper meaning. And when we find the deeper meaning, then we, we think, how does the music serve this? And then how does the music match the text so that we can share this message, whatever it can be, it could be the Shaker hymn, or it could be the Brahms Requiem, it can be anything, we must ask ourselves, how does this serve the people that are engaging in it? And what is the message that should be shared here? So uh, for me, that's our job as a conductor. And it's one of the greatest reasons to participate in a choral ensemble, because you get to be one of the many sparrows that come together to lift up something. Uh, And, you know, there might be one or two ravens in that choir, and (laughs) they're still welcome too. We we don't judge. We want them there, and and this is a safe space. So uh, that's a long answer to your your beautiful question. Oh, what a a beautiful answer, though. And I would just add to that, as we think about text, as we talk to conductors and future conductors, that these are your thoughts— as a conductor and how you perceive it. And one of the beautiful things about being a musician and artist and as a conductor is we can take the text and put our own spin on it. Someone might think of that text completely different than you did, but that's okay. That's artistry and, and that's artistic license. And you make it work to what you think. I think that's just a lovely thing. So when do we perform that piece at Texas State particularly? We perform it throughout the year several times, but when, when do we re- really use it? We use it especially at our very first concert, the Choral Collage, because that's when all of the ensembles sing together. We get to hear each other. We get to celebrate what each group is doing. And then, uh, after being five individual ensembles, we come together on the stage and we invite any alumni or anyone that has participated in a choral ensemble at Texas State to join us and lift their voices. So suddenly, the family, the current family is up there and the extended family joins us. And I would Probably there are people watching the pod, uh, the streaming and singing along at the same time. Oh, so, I'm sure. But that's are. the first time we do it. And then we try to do it throughout the year and certainly at our alumni choir in the summer. I, I like to, uh, when we have graduates at our last concert, I'll actually end the concert with Not One Sparrow, bring the graduates down to the stage. I usually have them positioned so the choir is singing to them. 
it's a and pretty kind special of moment. sending them off to let them know that you're not forgotten. Yeah. Text is so important. I think that's my favorite part about being a choral musician is we have that extra layer of communication that is just so powerful to anyone, whether they know music or not. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate your thoughts, and I sure. think that that's going to influence a, a lot of people. Is there a poet that you think particularly lends itself well to choral music or to singing? Who's your favorite poet? I have very many of them. Uh, certainly Emily Dickinson, because her poems have been set quite often, and I think beautifully Sarah Teasdale is one of my... Mm. Um, I know she's not new to the world, but she's sort of new to me in the last five years. So I've very much valued how she provides an opportunity for so many to find expression of how they're feeling right now. And it's beautiful to see that she was able to capture that and give voice, uh, especially with the age group that we deal with, the 18 to 25-year-old primarily. I find they need opportunities to have shared experience and understanding, and, and Sarah Teasdale seems to find them. And then Wordsworth is a childhood favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. So those are maybe my, my top three. But ask me next week, and there'd be three different ones. <laughs> of course, of course. Thank you so much for that. Since this is our inaugural episode, I'm going to end with a segment I lovingly call the spot check. I've compiled a list of questions from Texas State students who want to know more about you. This could get exciting. Oh my. So I'm going to go through some some questions now and you can just fire off the answers. Sophomore Gavin McGee would like to know what is the most significant performance you have ever conducted. (laughs) wow the most significant these are probably going to be the hardest questions yeah (laughs) because i i guess it would i you love all of your concerts like your children so it's it's a little difficult to point to one and say this is the most significant but i i would say 10 years ago we sang at swacda and on our way back through we performed at Quartz Mountain State Park, and it was a beautiful venue, and seeing how the kids loved that was touching. But then the next day, we sang at my hometown, well, it's not even, the country church I grew up in. That was significant to me in being able to share what I do with so many people that were a part of my formation, and to also share with the beautiful spirits that are in my life now a perspective of where I grew from and having an opportunity to share in that and for my family to be able to hear. It's one of the two times my mother has ever heard 
my choirs perform. Oh. So it was really beautiful that that was an opportunity. And you probably remember, <laughs> actually, as we were driving from the state park to the church, I handed out a, a hymn, Freely, Freely, and asked the ladies to learn it on the bus and to harmonize it on the bus. And they did it. And it was a piece that my mother had sung with her sisters in three-part harmony. Oh, so I to hear that. my students sing it in three-part harmony was really touching. So that was uh, most significant for a very specific reason, not because it was a more important performance, but because it related to my family. That's so beautiful. And I was on that tour, and it, w- it was just a beautifully special moment for everyone involved. It, it was a, a real touch point of this is why we do what we do. Wonderful. This question's from sophomore music education major Victoria Furlan. What do you think is the key to running a successful choral program? Uh, I, For me, Victoria, and that's a, a pretty simple answer, is you surround yourself by people who are better than you. Oh, and then, wow. yeah. when you do that, then uh, the sky's a limit. And if you try to surround yourself by people that are are equal or less than you, then uh, that's exactly what you're going to get. So don't feel um, diminished by it. Celebrate it and then watch it flourish. And before long, you'll be like, wow, look what's happened. But that to me is how you have a successful choral program. It's a beautiful thing. Here's another one from Joshua Moore, who asks, what makes you feel most accomplished at this stage of your life and career? That's a superb question, Joshua, and I think we should all pay tribute to the things. But the thing that makes me feel most accomplished is seeing the beautiful way in which our students interact. I think it is a result of modeling, and we all model the behavior and we advocate for the behavior that our students engage in, and I'm always impressed by just how beautifully human our students are. And you must know that you are a tremendous element of that and you're the leader of that here we all look to you for that leadership and we're, <laughs> well, we are grateful aim higher for that. but i it's <laughs> it's beautiful to see and it as you've met my family mm-hmm. it it's how i was raised i think there's something beautiful about farming life that you learn uh, to work hard and at the end uh the work that you've done, a natural disaster can come and destroy it. And you get up the next morning and you start again. And you work in unison and harmony, not always peacefully, but in in harmony with those around you for the greater outcome and the greater good of what's going to happen, which is on a farm, the crop, but really it's it's working together. Community. Yes. Thanks for the question. I just love the way you talk about music and always bring it together to community. That's really important to you, isn't it? That music, making music together is community. Community in general is important to me. Um, and and remembering that um, community doesn't mean everything is uh, utopic and that it's skipping down. Real boats rock. And it's important to allow for the rocking because that's that's how you find even greater community with each other is how we come together to to keep everything 
fluid and smooth while the boat is rocking till we make our way through. So, um, yeah, there's lots of life lessons about community, and I, I'm a strong proponent for it. You sure are. This is a great question from sophomore music education major Sarah Hernandez. She'd like to know what keeps you motivated and, and inspired in your life and career. It will sound a little simple and like an answer that people would expect you to go to, but it's the truth, so I'll state it. Uh, The greatest inspiration for me comes from our students, and it comes to me in every aspect of what we do, from the auditions and when they are, are seeking to become members of the School of Music, to the larger choral auditions when members of the entire uh, university campus are coming over to seek to join our choral family. I love the strength that they bring, their commitment to it, uh, being dauntless. And then they inspire me every day how, like as as uh, Rilke once stated, uh, that we must cling to that which is difficult, that all things in nature do it. Uh, Even seeds burst forth from the ground against all adversity to become these beautiful flowers. I see our students throughout the year bursting forth from seeds against all adversity to become these beautiful flowers. So they inspire me every day. Wow, I, you just got me a little choked up there. I, because you and I, I both I just, see it, we and do. we think and about it all the time. We've got the best job in the world, I think. I can't imagine <laughs> anybody more lucky than we are. Here's another great question from Katie Anderson. She mentions your fantastic skills as a pianist and collaborative or artist. She'd like to know what made you consider conducting rather than performing as a pianist. You kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but if you could tell us a little bit more about that decision-making process. The piano has always been a very important instrument for self-expression for me and also understanding and awareness. At the keyboard, I can find both melodic and harmonic, and then I can also find baseline movement and even uh, contrapuntal things. I can find music for myself. So I've certainly loved that. And I was very much inspired. But early in my life, I fell in love with the human voice. And um, we could talk a lot about that, but I'll just briefly say, um, especially when I heard Beverly Sills sing uh, for the first time for me uh, on a recording in 1985, listening on a cassette while riding a lawnmower, cutting the grass, I heard her sing uh, her Verdi Arias CD. And the very first thing was her singing the uh, aria from the Sicilian Vespers in French. And it was stunning. And when she trilled, I just was gasping. But I've, I fell in love with the human voice. And then the beauty of community and collaborating with another artist. Um, And I had the opportunity to work with a stunning musician, Melissa Buford Cam, as an undergrad. And in our undergraduate, just by exploring and, and committing to this artistry of collaborative art, we won the national MTNA competition together for vocal uh, collaboration and uh, singing on the national stage. You know, for a little senior from Southwestern Oklahoma State University, it, it was stunning to be there. And she sang much of the rep that Beverly Sills did, although she wasn't a color sure, she was a lyric sprout. She did some of it. So my love of the piano quickly became associated 
to my absolutely empowered passion for the voice and collaborating with them. Uh, so out of that and being in choirs, I realized, and my father helped me with this uh, my sophomore year because my father was, as any farmer would be when his son says, I'm going to be a music major, a little upset. <laughs> and, uh, because I'd given up a full ride to Oklahoma State University. I had more scholarships than I had tuition and books, so I actually had money left over to spend um, through because Oklahoma State University has a very strong agricultural program. Then I came to a university where I got no scholarship and was having to really work my way through. But he finally came to my the first core performance that he was able to attend. And he realized that I was singing in three, in two of the choirs and playing for three. And he said that of all the kids up there, I seemed to be the one that was most engaged and had joy the whole time that I was singing. I certainly didn't have the best voice, but I did. I loved every moment of that. And I fell in love with the choral art as an outgrowth of being a pianist for choral ensembles and then uh playing for collaborative artistry with singers. And to this day, I still love it. And I'll be doing two recitals, three actually this year with singers, the first <laughs> with you and uh, Mario Vassian. So um, we might as well get a plug in for our yeah, performance absolutely. coming up. <laughs> and that's going to be very exciting. And then uh, at the end of October, I'll be collaborating with Ron Ulan in pieces that you and I love. We're going to do the songs of travel and the dish de Liva of Schumann. So, um, and then I have a trio that I'm working with, but I still do it. I'm not the pianist that I used to be. I sometimes grieve for what, when I look at pieces I used to could play or I hear them, I'm like, oh my gosh. But I, I'm still able to contribute and I enjoy it. So thanks for the question. Uh, piano came to me. I loved it, but the pa the absolute awe for the human voice uh, took over my number one spot. So that's how choral music came along for me. That's fantastic. One of our tenors, Monty Williams, asks, considering all your successes, what can we look forward to from your future plans and goals? The unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's really honest. I think, again, after working with you for 10 years, I think that's a wonderful expectation. You come up with something that we're not even looking for, and it's fantastic. Yeah. We, we, we do a lot that's beautiful. Um, I'm always looking for what will that next thing be, and I don't know. So uh, just be ready for it when it comes, and I'm also open. So anybody have any ideas, share them, uh, and we'll go. But I'd love to reinvent myself, and I love to reinvent uh, what I do about every three to five years. So it's it's about time for a, a new journey, and I don't know what that would be, but I'm sure it's going to be interesting. Uh, there's no doubt about that. You are such an inspiration to not only the students here, but also to all of the faculty and the administration. You are a true leader, and we are so grateful for that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. This has been wonderful. And thank you for taking the time to do this. I mean, I love that this is hybrid vigor, that this is an idea that you had, and now you're running with it. And what a gift you're giving uh, to our entire choral community and our extended family. So thank you, Jonathan.
And thank you to all of our listeners for taking time out of your day to join us for episode one of Texas State Choirs Today. Texas State Choirs Today is broadcast on the 1st and 15th of every month. Our next episode will feature music education specialist from the state of Washington, Tim Henderson. You can look forward to that on November 1st, 2018. You don't want to miss that. Special thanks to our production team, Francis Nieves, Ian Flores, and Mark Erickson. Texas State Choirs Today is a production of the Historical Fire Station Studios at Texas State University. This is your host, Jonathan Babcock, wishing you wonderful singing and beautiful music making.